Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stair. All right, we'll talk about some Christmas Day matchups. Some guys were in their bag, and Santa brought us a lot of presents on Christmas Day. Talk about James Harden carrying the team now with Kyrie and Kevin Durant still out, as well as some other veterans that continue to get chances given the hardship extent uh, exceptions with COVID. JB Bickerstaff gets an extension, and Russell Westbrook feels a bit boxed in. And we'll finish with everybody's favorite segment: What's the verdict? But to start, Christmas Day. What'd you like? What did you feel was the biggest gift? Well, I think that seeing the Warriors and Suns game obviously was huge. Um, Stephen Curry put on a show. The Suns basically had the lead a lot of the game and still wound up losing because Curry was on fire. Um, Curry hitting some ridiculous shots that only he can make. I think he definitely put on a show for everyone. And he also, um, he broke his slump on Christmas Day because Stephen Curry actually had not had a 20-point game in all of the Christmas Day games that he had played. Um, Ironically enough, it seems that on that day, he just um, struggles a little bit, and it wasn't exactly a great shooting performance for him. He did go 5 of 16 from 3 and 10 of 27 overall, which is by no means good, but he was a plus 24 on the game, and he hit very timely shots, and I thought it was a very exciting game and definitely – a fun battle between the top two teams in the league. I was actually surprised to see the Warriors win it. Um, I thought the Suns might pull this one out, but um, Stephen Curry proves that when he's on it and he's hitting shots with people draped all over him, no matter who's guarding him, he gives his team a chance to win on any given occasion. Yeah, it definitely was the best matchup. I thought that the Atlanta-New York matchup was probably – an error, honestly, on the part of the NBA. I think that if you want to look at two Eastern Conference teams, it should have been the Heat versus the Bulls in that slot instead. But those guys get to be home with their families while Atlanta and New York, who are barely at or over the 500 mark, are playing against one another with depleted teams as well. New York did pull it out, which I thought was an impressive performance from Julius Randle and that whole team, as well as, obviously, Kemba Walker still playing well. And then the... Honestly, every game was pretty close down the stretch. I think uh, we'd be remiss not to mention that LeBron James passes Kobe Bryant for most Christmas Day points. Now he is uh, number one in that category after putting up 39 points on Christmas Day against the Nets, but the Nets pulling out the win there. And then the Utah Jazz-Dallas Mavericks game, good game overall. Donovan Mitchell being a leading scorer there against Kristaps Porzingis is 27 and the Mavericks end up losing that game but all in all good good games uh throughout the entirety of it with the exception of that first game that probably should have been replaced to be honest with you i only liked two of the games well actually i'll give it three i liked three of the games it's just that one of those three and i'll get into that for um a little bit in in a second was more underwhelming than you would have anticipated But I really didn't think, like you said, that the Hawks and the Knicks had any business being there. It's just a matter of the fact that last season, based on the way that they played last year, we expected them to be in a position where they would be a good matchup this year. But it's really hard to predict um, in the NBA, of course. And 
out of these two teams to say which one is more underwhelming is hard because they've both underachieved, even though they seemingly have no outside reason to be doing so much worse. I mean, the Knicks, they add a player in Kemba Walker who many would have thought would have added to their offense and helped them overall. They retained pretty much everyone else and had young players that were developing, yet somehow they regress overall. The Hawks, a lot of the same thing. They brought everyone back. Um, they have Trey Young healthy most of the year. They have all their pieces there, and they still somehow regress. And, yeah, they've had to deal with injuries and um, COVID protocols, but so has everyone else. So these two teams are just some of the biggest disappointments in the NBA this year. Um, the Celtics and Bucks game was really fun. Giannis Antetokounmpo coming back had a dominant game. I don't know if anyone heard it, but he shouted an expletive at Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart tried to jump in and dive for a charge and um, kind of embellished it a little bit, the contact, try to sell it um, when it wasn't there. Didn't get called. Giannis gets his dunk. And he goes and yells at Marcus Smart and tells DeMarcus Cousins, I hate that little uh, expletive. You can fill in the blank if you want to go ahead and uh, watch the replay. But Giannis comes back with a monster game, puts up 13 of 23 from the field, 36 points, 12 rebounds, five assists, also had two blocks. I think that probably this was the best overall performance of all the Christmas Day games just because of the efficiency and the impact on defense as well. And um, the Nets-Lakers game was a game that I'm sure when the NBA had scheduled it, they looked at it as the battle of the two big threes. You're going to have James Harden, Kyrie Irving, uh, Kevin Durant, and you're going to have these guys going against LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook. You know, that sounded great on paper last year. This time we find out that Kyrie Irving is not playing due to health and safety protocols. Kevin Durant is not playing due to health and safety protocols. Anthony Davis is injured again, like always. Um, and James Harden, at least before this point, hadn't quite been what he used to be. So um, it was definitely interesting to see the game still be very competitive. Um, you got to give it to him. James Harden and LeBron James did put on a show. But James Harden edged LeBron James on this one, just making more timely plays down the stretch, getting a Christmas Day triple-double the right way. He had 36 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists, but was overall somewhat efficient. Three of eight from three and 10 of 25 from the field. Russell Westbrook, on the other hand, gets a Christmas Day triple-double as well, but he had to take 20 shots and only had four of those go in. Um, it was just a wildly inefficient game for us, and he was a game worse, minus 23, plus minus on the day. So um, it really is a, a tale of... Also, the way that the season has been going for these two teams, for the Nets, doesn't seem what they throw out there. Somehow they still win, even though their depth isn't anything to brag about. It seems when they need one of their stars to step up and carry them, they get that. For the Lakers, the story has been no matter what LeBron seems to do, they can't win. So LeBron James, another great game. He's been stepping up his scoring in the absence of Anthony Davis. Doesn't matter. Still lose. So um, we'll get more into why that can be later in the segment. But overall, I really did think that um, in retrospect, a lot of these Christmas Day games probably didn't turn out to be as good as many people would have hoped. Well, we'll see what next Christmas brings us, but hopefully the NBA gets it right from a scheduling perspective. Moving on, though, Harden is back. You just mentioned that he was in his bag 
on Christmas Day and then yesterday uh, carried the Nets again with their players still in COVID protocols. He went 39-15-8 and eight against the Clippers, almost getting another triple-double, and claims that all of his struggles are over with, that that person he was at the beginning of the season, that's that's done. Now he's back to the, the real James Harden. So are we going to see this James Harden for the rest of the season? I mean, you got to give him his credit. When he was doing poorly, he did say that he didn't feel quite himself and he didn't think that he was at a point that he could go and score 30 points on a game-to-game basis. It's not like he's the kind of player that says, I'm doing great, everything's fine, and then everything's not, um, like certain people. But this is the first time all year that he's actually had back-to-back 30-point games. And I think that Kevin Durant getting out um, is actually starting to make him change his mindset and remember, hey, like I'm actually kind of good at scoring the basketball. I think a lot of the James Harden dialogue this season has revolved around the fact that we're not calling the game the same way and there's not as many foul calls and he's not getting to the line as much. And that's been the reason why he regressed and he'll never be the same player because he was basically only successful when he was getting to the free throw line at a high clip. But if we look at the actual numbers, I don't really know if I agree with all that. Last season, he got to the line 7.3 times per game. And while he was with the Rockets that year, he was getting to the line 7.5 times per game. I know that before that, he had had four consecutive years getting to the line 10 times or more, actually uh, six consecutive seasons. But still, before the rules changed, James Harden was getting to the line at around 7.5 to 7.3 attempts per game. Part of that being he just wasn't in good shape. He was definitely out of shape during that time. He arrived to the Nets admittedly out of shape. And he did say at the beginning of the year that he was probably going to need a couple of months to round into the sort of form that he knows he's capable of performing at an elite level on a game-to-game basis. So I think out of necessity, I mean, you got to give him his credit. He could have possibly just kicked back and said, this is who I am now. And um, just, you know, allowed the Nets to kind of sink a little bit while Durant is out. But instead he has stepped up and you got to give him his credit. His numbers actually haven't been terrible this year. Um, everyone makes it out to be like, he's just trash now, but his numbers actually haven't been all that bad. He is number two in the league in assists. He's getting 9.8 assists per game. He's getting 22 points per game. And he's also quietly getting eight rebounds per game, which is one of his career highs. It would rank in the top three of them amongst all his seasons. He's shooting 87% from the free throw line. So he hasn't lost his efficiency there. And like I said, he is getting to the line. 7.6 times per game. I think the main thing that he has to do is get his general field goal percentage up, which fell off a cliff this season. He's only shooting 41% from the field and 34% from three. So that's um, definitely on the low side for what we're expecting from him. But I think that with better conditioning, more endurance, he'll get better at finishing around the rim. We saw him uncharacteristically missing a lot of easy ones early in the year. I think getting more success finishing through contact and um, also being more consistent with his three-point shot will help a lot. So for the Nets, you got to be happy that um, even when Durant is out, you still have a guy that's performing at this level that can get you wins. 
course, it like you said, it seems like whoever the Nets put in, they're somehow still winning games as opposed to some of the other teams like the Lakers in the league. And uh, we'll see what happens when Kyrie comes back. But I think that this team appears destined to at least get to the Eastern Conference Finals, given them being able to just fight through this adversity and uh, being able to win games overall. But enough with some stalwarts in the NBA and MVP seasons from them. Let's talk about these veterans that are getting another chance. So with COVID, with these health and safety protocols, there's a lot of hardship exceptions that are being given right now. And a lot of old names who are just coming out of the woodwork and getting these returns with 10-day contracts. So do you think these guys are going to make an actual impact or is just a nice storyline during this season that's being heavily impacted by COVID? Under normal circumstances, I'd probably say that it's not really going to make that big of a difference. I don't think that it's going to make a difference um, in the sense that these guys are going to put some team over the top. I don't think that these guys are going to be anyone's key missing piece to become a contender or anything like that. But I think what these guys can be for some teams are stop gaps or just safety nets to keep you afloat for a little while until you can get your main pieces back. So there are some guys that are coming back that have had success in the past. It's not all guys that are just trying to make a name for themselves for the first time. We are seeing names like Joe Johnson come back, although he is 40 years old. It's not unquestioned to see a 40-year-old make somewhat of a positive impact. We saw Vince Carter and what he was able to do off the bench for the Hawks was definitely valuable. So, like I said, it's not going to be the kind of thing that it's going to change the ceiling of your team, but it's something that can provide some extra depth and maybe help you weather a storm at a given position. Maybe you're someone like the Heat who have been battered along the front line and you're just dealing with a lot of people out in the same position group. In a situation like that, having one of these 10-day contracts um, of a guy just performing serviceable can make a difference for your team. So we see guys like Greg Monroe coming back. He just signed a a 10-day. DeMarcus Cousins obviously is on one. Um, Isaiah Thomas didn't get signed to another one. Cousins is signed for the rest of the season. Oh, he got upgraded. That's great for him. But um, Isaiah Thomas um, didn't get a second 10-day from the Lakers, but apparently has interest around the league. So we expect him to get another one. Brandon Knight coming back to the Dallas Mavericks. Um, These are all guys that have had varied levels of success at independent points in their careers. Lance Stevenson, another one that came back. But like I said, I don't think it's going to be something that puts any one team over the top. I think at best it'll just be a stopgap to help players weather the storm while they're facing um, a bunch of players out at the same position. Well, what's interesting about that is I read with Greg Monroe coming back that he was the the 541st player to come back or to play this season. And typically in an NBA season, there's 450 players. So clearly with everything going on, there have been a ridiculous amount of players who have played in the NBA this season. And so obviously you are going to have these opportunities for these guys to potentially come back and get an audition to be 
back in the NBA. I think that, like you said, with IT, although he's not getting a second 10 day with the Lakers, he probably will get a couple 10 days with another team and hopefully have the chance to prove himself to get a guaranteed contract for the rest of the season. But with Greg Monroe, what's interesting, he was out of the NBA for two and a half years and we'll see if he regresses to the mean in the next performance, but he went five and nine from the field. He had nine rebounds, six assists, two steals, one block, plus 13 on the game. So that's an amazing stat line, no matter if you're on the bench starting. So if he continues to play like that, people are going to wonder why he's been sitting out of the league for two and a half years. But we'll see how this works out for other guys in the league. But I think it is a good problem to have um, or a silver lining, if you will, if these guys are given a chance to audition for the league and be able to come back and have a Cinderella story for themselves. Yeah, I think it's great. I think the, the league is basically having its hands tied because they have obviously to pursue trying to finish the basketball season, but at the same time, they have to have some kind of policies in place for when players get COVID and such. So it's right now a difficult thing to deal with because all teams are having to deal with their depth affected by this so I think that more this season than other seasons, we're going to see depth be a major factor. I think that certain teams, for example, that maybe given all players being healthy, if they go head to head, maybe they're very competitive because they rely on maybe one or two players just going off and being the two best players on the court for both teams that are playing. I think that those teams are going to struggle more this season than a team like, for example, the Suns, who on any given day don't really rely massively on any one person to make a huge contribution and they kind of just spread it out. And on any given day, anyone might be their leading scorer. Teams like that are probably going to thrive a little more this year because they're better able to survive one person missing. If you're one of those teams that relies on someone heavily for your success and that one player goes down, chances are your odds of winning are sunk. So I think that um, it's awesome that you can get these 10-day contracts in. You never know who might give you something. Like you said, Greg Monroe, some of these guys, realistically speaking, aren't all, you know, Hail Marys. Like, they're not all guys like Joe Johnson that are, like, 40 years old that you're like, come on, realistically, this guy's not really going to give you big minutes. But Greg Monroe is only 31. I mean, and he was pretty effective during his time in the league while he was in the league. I think that he was a casualty of the league heading in a three point direction where they were obsessed with, you know, pace and space offense. You need to be someone that is a floor spacing center. You need to be able to run the floor. You need to be able to run the fast break. Greg Monroe kind of uh, old school center back to the basket guy, very efficient scorer, good rebounder. He's just not really what you'd consider a modern NBA day, uh, NBA center. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he can't help your team still if utilized in the right situation, I think that Greg Monroe can still help somebody. And um, there are other players out there like that that I think can make a difference too. Lance Stevenson himself um, has been a solid defender um, in, in recent years, and he's only 32 years old himself. He's still – or 31 years old. He's still in his physical prime. Um, and I would love to see Michael Beasley come back to the league and get a 10-day contract. I know that a lot of people think that he's uh, – just a gimmick player, a joke. And he did come out the other day and say that he thinks he's better than 90% of the guys in the league today. I mean, this guy was talented. He was the former number two overall pick for a reason. 
He just never fully realized his potential because let's be real. He didn't really have the right mindset, but everybody who's had him as a teammate will tell you that the guy can put the ball in the basket. And given that he's six foot nine can shoot from range, can space the floor. I can see him actually being able to help a lot of teams who may need a guy off the bench that can get some buckets. Yeah. A guy who I want to make, uh, or want to make his comeback is uh, Michael Beasley. I think that he's shown a lot at these like Drew League or Drew League adjacent style of uh, play against NBA players and, and others. And I think that he's just like Greg Monroe, 32 years old, young, still seems like he could give something to some teams. So let's uh, let's get Beasley back in the league. Beasley, if you're hearing this, reach out to us. Come on, Court of Opinion. We will plead your case to the league for why you need to be back. I guarantee you, we'll get you back in this league. We're, we'll, we'll become NBA agents off of a podcast. Moving on, though, JB Bickerstaff gets an extension. Cavs are currently fifth in the East. First off, where do you think that they will finish? And then secondly, what do you think the odds are for him being coach of the year? Uh, this is so weird that the Cavs are having success. It's so weird because my mind like cannot compute that. And I just, I can't seem to come to terms with the fact that they're actually a good team. And I mean, if I just cover up their name and I don't see that they are in Cleveland and that they are the Cavaliers and I'm just looking at their raw numbers. I mean, that's a good team actually. They're 20 and 13. I know they're fifth place, but fifth place in the East means something different when being fifth place means that you're only three and a half games out of first. And the first place Nets are 23 and nine. So these Cavs are like really good. After them, the next best team drops to 17 and 16. The East are really a five-team race right now, it seems, with Miami Heat, fourth place, 21 and 13, Cleveland Cavaliers, fifth place, 20 and 13. And then you have Philadelphia 76ers at six at 17 and 16. So, I mean, looking at this at the beginning of the year, I would have definitely said that the 76ers and the Celtics would be better teams than the Cavaliers. I'm not surprised to see the Washington Wizards dropping because I can't get behind a team that has Kyle Kuzma as a major piece to their winning formula as a serious contender. So I'm not surprised to see that the Washington wizards have fallen off a cliff and are three and seven in their last 10, but I am still surprised to see that the Boston Celtics are still ninth with a losing record of 16 and 18 and the Hawks are 15 and 18. I think at this point I can come to terms with the fact that the Atlanta Hawks are not going to be a good team this year. But, you know, they did have a year where they started out pretty terribly and finished strong. I just don't see it happening this year. And even if they do have a bounce back year, are they really better than the Cavaliers? All the numbers would indicate that the Cavaliers are the better team. They have great length. They have a plus 6.5 differential, which is actually the best in the entire Eastern Conference, even better than the, than the Brooklyn Nets are. They're only allowing... 101 points per game. Their defense is actually elite. They actually are allowing fewer points per game than the Miami Heat are, 
and the Miami Heat are a top five defense, and we all talk about it, but no one talks about how the Cavaliers are actually an even better defense than the Miami Heat are, which is absurd. And they're still actually scoring just a few more points than the Miami Heat. If you look at the Miami Heat as a good barometer for the East, you've seen that the Miami Heat have been able to beat the Milwaukee Bucks, the Chicago Bulls, and the Brooklyn Nets and have winning records against all of those teams. But they're 0-2 against the Cavs. The Cavs actually are a really good team. So I'm going to have to come to terms with the fact that at this point, the Cavaliers are a top six team in the East. Are the Celtics going to get back into the top six? Probably not. I think that they probably finish right where they're at, at fifth. Because at this point, the Philadelphia 76ers, they seem to just go the way that Joel Embiid does. On a game-by-game basis, I don't see them being able to rip off um, long winning streaks, at least not while they have this turmoil around their team and essentially all-star level assets allocated to a player in Ben Simmons who's not showing up. So I wouldn't say that the Cavaliers are better than the Heat, Bucks, Bulls, or Nets. I'm going to put them right at fifth. That sounds about right. Well, in addition to everything you just said, the Cavs are allowing 101.4 points per game, whereas the best defensive team by that stat line, the Golden State Warriors, is allowing 101.2. So they're a hair off from being the best defensive team in the NBA based off of their opponents per game total that they allow. And I agree with a lot of your points. I didn't think that the Cavs would be this good. I honestly thought they had too much length. I thought that adding Laurie Markkinen to Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, I thought they were just creating a logjam at the forward center position. You also have Kevin Love there. So for me, it just didn't seem like they had all of the right pieces or the right tools, but they're proving that to be incorrect and that all that length is actually helping them and that they don't have to play small ball, but they can play big ball and do well. So they've come a long way in a short amount of time from the John Bayline days with JB Bickerstaff. Uh, And I think in terms of him for coach of the year, I still think that he would have to crack the top four in the Eastern conference to be truly in consideration there. I think that with all of these teams, the bulls having a bunch of new pieces how are they going to mesh? And then they're second in the Eastern Conference. Billy Donovan has a better case than J.B. Bickerstaff. I think that the Miami Heat, with all of the injuries and just like no names in terms of undrafted players that they have on that team and still to be sitting in the fourth spot and really only a half game behind the Bucks, one and a half games behind the Bulls, um, they're in a great spot right now that Eric Spolstra can be in consideration for that. Obviously, the Warriors... They still aren't to full strength and they're being like arguably the best team in the NBA right now with the best point differential, the best uh, amount of points that they're allowing per game for opponents. You have the Utah Jazz who are scoring the most amount of points per game in the Western Conference and Quinn Snyder is going to be in contention as well. And obviously you can't forget about the Phoenix Suns. So I think there are a lot of coaches that can be considered for that. And it's first going to be looked at as what's your record? What have you done with the players, with your team? What kind of adversity have you faced? And how much has it been a star or two carrying this team versus you being a great coach? 
Um, I, I think that Cleveland has some of those arguments, but there's other teams that are probably weighted a little more uh, in favor for those coaches. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that J.B. Bickerstaff has proven himself to be a great coach, but like you mentioned, there's lots of other coaches that have just as good of a case, if not better this year. There's honestly going to be a really good um, battle for this one because there's so many different coaches that have a good case. I think that J.B. Bickerstaff may have had a case to be in the top three for this award on a different year, but given the way that things are playing out this year, I think that he's not even in the top four. So um, I think that it's really impressive what he's been able to do with his player development. He has, I mean, a, a bunch of players that we thought were going to be a log jam when he first inherited that team. But um, he has really been able to carve out clear and defined rules for everyone. What he's been able to do with Evan Mobley, putting him in a position to be one of the best defensive players in the league and not just one of the best defensive rookies, but one of the best defensive players, averaging 1.8 blocks per game and having the second most shot attempts or a shot contests per game they also have Darius Garland who has stepped up huge and been instrumental to their success in the absence of Colin Sexton many people thought that Colin Sexton going down was going to tank this team including myself but Darius Garland is now averaging 19.5 points per game averaging 7.3 assists and is pretty much going to guarantee now that Colin Sexton gets traded so I think that um you got to give J.B. Bickerstaff his credit he was given a bunch of high picks, but we've seen the Cavs have high picks for many, many years, basically most of their years, and not do anything with any of those players. J.B. Bickerstaff is actually taking this talent and actually developing it and forming it into something cohesive. Isaac Okoro is looking like an improved player this year, um, provides a lot of versatility on defense. And even Ricky Rubio, a player that has been around lots of different teams, is making a major impact. Um, having a veteran presence on that team and helping distribute the ball. So as much as I like this team, I just don't think that they're going to be anything more than a, a nice story and a fifth seed. We'll see how they end up, but talk about Russell Westbrook. Russ feels a little boxed in right now. He's claimed that people aren't really allowing him to thrive anymore because they're expecting too much each night. They want him to get 25, 15 and 15, which is just unrealistic. And he claims that people continue to say they want to let Russ be Russ, but they don't even know what that means. And by claiming that all the time, it's actually doing the opposite, not allowing Russ to be Russ. So how do you think the Lakers can let Russ be Russ or in other terms, let Russ just do his stuff and, and not have to worry about what other people are thinking? To be honest, I think that Russ is being Russ. This is what Russ does. Russ says that everybody is expecting for him to get 25, 15, and 15 every game. But that's not what everybody is expecting, actually. What people are expecting is for him to make the right decision. If he gets the triple-double on the way while he's making the right decisions, then great. What people don't want is for him to think that he needs to get the triple-double to be successful. We have seen that you can get a triple-double and still play poorly. He showed us that on Christmas Day when he shot four of 20. They still lost the game, and he still got his triple-double. There's literally a meme going around on a key possession where the lead could have been cut to just one point of Russell Westbrook attacking four players at once on a fast break. He has two players 
right next to each other, open in the corner. He's got LeBron with his hands up in the air and another player a little further down by the elbow of the three, also wide open. Instead, chooses to take on four players at once in a very critical moment in the game. That is Russ being Russ. That is exactly what people mean by him trying to do too much. It's not expected for him to get a triple-double every game. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of people would have guessed that playing with the Lakers and having to share the ball with LeBron and Anthony Davis, I think it was expected he probably wasn't going to get a triple-double average this year. No one is expecting that of him. And I think that that is what would help him be a better player. He needs to stop thinking that the expectation is for him to get 25, 15, and 15. That's not the expectation. He's got it twisted in his head. What people want him to do is to use his talents and leverage his ability to win games. It's not about his final box score. If he has a a fast break situation and teams are overplaying his drive because of his speed and the paint has collapsed and there's four players in the paint and you're down by three and you have two guys wide open in the corner, then pass it. Don't take it on four guys. That's what people want. But instead, he'll be himself. He'll take a critical moment like that. He'll try to do too much. And it's little moments like that that cost you games, honestly. So, and he also, I think part of the reason why he hasn't been able to overcome is because he refuses to acknowledge that his decision-making is an issue. We have James Harden, we were just talking about, who earlier in the year, regardless of what you want to say about him, he said, hey, I'm not playing to the best of my abilities right now. I'm out of shape. I need to get back on it. I'm going to need some time to get back to a place where I can be the player that I was. Then you have Russell Westbrook. His tune is, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. I don't feel any pressure. I've already won because I already made it to the league. Therefore, I won already. I don't need to prove anything to anyone. Um, I'm great. I mean, just, just look yourself in the mirror, Russ, and understand. We know that you're a talented player. We know that you're a star. We know that you're... The only player besides Oscar Robertson to average a triple-double for a whole year, we give you your props. But you don't have to get a triple-double every game. The object of the game is to win, not to get a triple-double. And the sooner you realize that, the sooner you can maybe save your legacy because you're always going to be remembered as a guy at this point who went for the triple-double instead of the win. I would almost argue... Uh, counter to what you're saying about going for a triple double this season, because he is the season averaging about the same amount of minutes, but he is shooting way fewer field goals per game. He's attempting 16.5 as opposed to 19 and 22 and 20 in the last three seasons. And the that's fewer field goal attempts than every single year since his second season in the league. And he's doing so averaging a hair under uh, turnovers as opposed to the last like five seasons. So he's probably still playing too fast and trying to do too much. But like, I feel his problem is he's like not leaning into the things or the places where he is successful. Like his two-point free field goal attempts from just inside the three-point line. He's 
making 45% of his shots. And he's clearly having a lot of issues from like gimme baskets or layups because he missed 10 the other day when he went four for 20. And so for Russ, I think he just needs to lean in a little bit more where he's already been successful. His assist numbers are down for the year. His rebound numbers are down for the year. His free throw percentage is garbage right now, 66%, as opposed to he shooting almost 80% for his career. So that has fallen off an absolute cliff. So like you said, he needs to first be self-aware and say, things aren't fine right now. I'm not gelling. I need to get my mojo back. And then once he does get his mojo back, he should lean into the places where he is being successful on the year. His three-point shot got a little bit better from his year in Houston where he was shooting 26%. He's now up to 30% this year. So I so think he that went from hot garbage to garbage. On three-point, yeah. But the rest of his game, like – Three-point and and free-throw percentages are both terrible right now for him. But his field goal percentage from inside three, not that bad. So become a mid-range shooter until you can slow it down and get a little bit better from outside the arc. And pass the ball like you're known to do and go crash the boards. So I think – and obviously make smarter decisions when passing the ball so you can get your turnover numbers down. But – I, I think that he is uh, probably playing a little bit frantically in LA because it's probably like the place that he's wanted to play his whole life. And now he has this opportunity and I'm sure that he understands, Hey, I have been traded every single season for the last three years. I haven't made an all-star game since Houston and I'm likely not going to make one this year. So I feel like, He's playing for his childhood team while also feeling the pressure of getting older and not performing the way that he used to. And that's all weighing down instead of him letting himself be himself or him letting Russ be Russ, but for himself. So I think that he needs to do a little uh, like introspective work and hopefully close out the second half of the season strong. I think that he cannot close out the second half of the season strong if he finishes with the Lakers. I have said this from the very beginning. He is not a good fit with that team at all. If Russ is going to be Russ, he needs to be on a team that is going to cover for his weaknesses. He is a complete non-shooter. He can't even shoot from the free throw line at this point when no one is defending him. So this is not a player that is going to thrive on a team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis who are not knockdown perimeter shooters themselves. Yeah, I know LeBron James is an improved three-point shooter, but if LeBron James is the best three-point shooter on your team, and he's probably the only one on, in your lineup that can say they can consistently be a threat from out there, you're going to be in trouble if you're Russell Westbrook. If you're Westbrook, you need to basically play like a shrunken down version of Giannis Antetokounmpo, and you need a similar lineup. Something like that, but for Westbrook. That's, that's what would work for him. And he does not have that on the Lakers at all. It was very obvious to see from the very beginning that this was not going to work. His mid-range jump shot is actually really hard to get to right now just because teams are basically not playing him so much from the three-point line that before, one of his favorite things to do, which was to get past his defender if they overplayed him a little bit, pull up by stopping quickly for mid-range and doing his little cotton shot, it's a lot harder to get to that shot because when he gets into the paint, his defender is already sitting right there in that little region. 
because they're not going to go up to him at the three-point line. So they're just lying in wait for him to come up. And if he gets to the cotton shot, that little 15-foot range, the defender's right there in his face. And if he goes into the paint, he is swarmed by defenders and doesn't kick it out, it seems. So this is honestly a really tough position for him to be in. Um, it's just not a good fit stylistically on this team. It's just that I really don't know what the Lakers can do about it because at this point, he really doesn't have very much trade value. We see the kind of liability he becomes in the playoffs for offenses. He literally, you can count on teams leaving him wide open completely at the three-point line, completely. They will go double-team everyone and leave him wide open, and he will not make them pay. That is a killer in the playoffs. If you don't have the right roster that can salvage a situation like that, like the Bucks, you can't really do much with him. It's unfortunate. And the Lakers don't have anything else of value that they can package with him to get anything of value back. I think it's funny when I see Lakers fans tweeting things about Taylor Horton Tucker and trade packages, like, like if anyone wants Taylor Horton Tucker. Like, are you not seeing the same player that I'm seeing, Lakers fans? I'm sorry, but Taylor Horton Tucker is not an asset. I don't know why you guys ever thought he was an asset. It was always pretty clear to me from the very beginning that there was nothing, you know, nothing special about this guy. I mean, yeah, he's an NBA player. You know, he every now and then he can be solid. But you guys were talking about this guy like he was going to develop into a somebody. Like this guy is a role player at best. And you guys are like talking about him like you're going to package him with Russell Westbrook and get an all-star back. Folks, you are not getting an all-star back for Taylor Horton Tucker and Russell Westbrook. I am sorry to tell you. You should have signed Alex Caruso when you had the chance. He would have literally been probably the second or third best player on a night-to-night basis on your team today if you had kept him. And I know that that one stings because a lot of you fans of LA, you knew what you lost immediately when they didn't sign him. It's not like you guys were like, oh, yeah, we don't need him. You guys were heard about it, so I give you your credit. You knew what you lost when you did. But right now, there's not really much you can do about this Taylor Horton Tucker, Russell Westbrook situation which is arguably the worst backcourt by efficiency in the NBA. Definitely the worst shooting backcourt in the NBA. You can't make an argument about that. So I really don't know what they can do to fix this situation. I don't know how they can possibly entice a team to take on this massive contract. It honestly just seems like, unfortunately, it's going to be a down year for the Lakers. And if you're the Lakers, I don't know who you're more disappointed in, Anthony Edwards or Russell Westbrook because neither one of them is giving you what you thought. Anthony Davis, I mean, at this point, you can, you can argue that he's not really a disappointment as much as he's just fulfilling what you already know he's going to do. He's hurt again, but he's always hurt. So at this point, does that really disappoint you, or is it just like the status quo? Russell Westbrook, on the other hand, I know that there actually were people out there who thought that that was going to be a good look. There were truly people out there who were thinking that this made them title favorites. For those people, I imagine it's got to be hard to see the way it's played out. Well, we'll see if Russ uh, does well to close out the year, but sounds like you're a, you're a hard no there. But moving on to what's the verdict, you'll ask me a series of questions and I will decide whether the person or the situation is guilty or innocent. Let's do this. All right. Carl Anthony Towns states that Russ is a stat chaser on his Twitch stream. Is Cat guilty of being salty with Russ for no apparent reason, or does he have a point? Well, I think he's guilty of 
being salty with Russ for no reason, but he probably does have a point. Uh, I, I think if you look into the transcript of exactly what he said, he was saying there's no hate against Russ, but it's more of like, I, I don't feel like he lets the game come to him. I feel like he is playing it at a bit too fast of a pace, which is exactly what you were just saying about Russell. So I, I just don't, I feel like Kat, who has been this quiet, reserved person for so long, in the last couple of weeks has just obviously made the bold claim that he's the best big man shooter ever and now is making this uh, like dig at Russell Westbrook on his stream. So for somebody who's been so quiet and reserved for so long in the league, he's now just back-to-back weeks coming out with some some bold statements. I wonder if uh, Kat is turning the corner on, hey, I'm not going to be quiet anymore. I'm just going to be uh, loud and everybody's going to hear me. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at Carl Anthony Towns right now and he's talking a big game. I'm, I'm guessing being, uh, you know, in eighth place for the Timberwolves, that's a pretty big accomplishment. I can't remember the last time that the Timberwolves were in the playoffs. I think the last time was when they had Jimmy Butler which um, obviously that didn't end up the way that Carl Anthony Towns would have hoped. But um, I think he's talking a little too much for a team that is only scratching the perimeter of the playoff chase. Yes, I agree that he has a point. I'll be the first one to tell you that Russell Westbrook is doing terrible things this year. But I just don't think it's really Carl Anthony Towns' place to be talking about it. It's not like he's commenting on his teammates' play or someone that is, you know, directly involved with him or someone that he just played that night and he's being asked an interview about a recent game that he had. He's literally just going out of pocket here, just volunteering this information for no apparent reason. And even though he may be right, it does seem to be against an unwritten rule in the NBA. Draymond Green uh, later came out seemingly to Russell Westbrook's defense about the stat chasing thing, and he said, I seem to remember a game where I was sitting on the bench because we were beating the crap out of the Minnesota Timberwolves and they were down by 20 points and there was two minutes left in the game and Cat was still out there. So basically implying like game's clearly out of hand and it's over. If you're out there, it's clear because you're trying to get stats too. So basically Draymond Green is saying here that don't throw a stone in a glass house. And he also goes on to say that um, there's kind of like a brotherhood in the NBA that you're not supposed to talk down or badly about other players, I guess, at least not when it's unsolicited like that for no apparent reason. So I do think it's a little strange that Carl Anthony Towns is talking a little too much. I think he's taken a page out of his girlfriend, Jordan Woods's book and just singing every time they put a microphone in his face But I think that given the fact that he's sitting at eighth place in the West, he would be better served to worry less about what other people are doing and worry more about putting his team in position to win. But moving on to our next one, the NBA is reducing the timeline for when COVID vaccinated players can return for the players that test positive. Is the NBA guilty of putting profits ahead of player safety? So the CDC came out and said that if you are COVID positive, but asymptomatic and you're vaccinated, that you could return after five days to work. The NBA has now changed it to be uh, six days. So giving it one additional day. I, 
I don't know though. I think that if, if, if the research is indicating that you aren't contagious after five days and they're giving the extra day of buffer, then I would say that they're innocent. But given the fact that they have so many players right now that have been testing positive and sitting out uh, with their health and safety protocols, this does seem very convenient that, oh, hey, we have so many players sitting out. We've had to give so many hardship uh, exceptions to teams that now we're just going to ease the rules up a little bit on the players who have been vaccinated and get them back more quickly. So I think that they are a little guilty of choosing profits over player safety in this instance and just trying to speed getting back players into lineups when perhaps they might still be contagious. So for me, I mean, obviously it's a sensitive topic and all, but Adam Silver did say that he doesn't believe that stopping the season is going to be a solution that he would consider because he himself has acknowledged that this is not something that's going to go away. It's more so something that we have to learn how to deal with. And you can take that how you may. That's his words. But um, at this point, what else can the players really do? Apparently, they're 97% vaccinated as a group. Many of the players that are going out with health and safety protocols are admittedly asymptomatic when they do go out and are essentially just waiting for a test to come back negative, um, not necessarily that they're feeling any negative effects themselves. And I also do think that there's something to be said for the safety precautions that everyone else is taking. If you as a fan are attending these games, first of all, like if we're ruling out that the players themselves are not in any danger because the symptoms that they're experiencing are not an issue, they're 97% vaccinated, the vaccine makes the symptoms in such a way that they're not a threat um, to have really serious side effects. Everything that Adam Silver is doing is within the scope of what is commonly accepted by CDC guidelines. It's not like he's making up new rules as he goes that no one else is doing or backed by nothing. I think in a situation like that, you can't say that they're not putting the player safety um, first. I think at this point, you can't say that because he's doing everything that you can reasonably do on paper short of canceling the season. And if you're talking about fan safety, I think that as a fan, you also have self-accountability to know when you're going to an event. I mean, you're taking your own risks. You have to take your own precautions. You have to consider for yourself, am I vaccinated? Am I going to wear a mask? Whatever the case may be, whatever your safety protocol is for yourself, you have to look at that as a personal assumption of risk and know that the NBA is basically following every policy that it can but I don't think it's inherently putting anyone at danger or risk. And I don't think that it's like putting profits first. I think it's just a complicated situation and they're doing the best that they can to not have the season um, adversely affected again by something that honestly doesn't seem to be going away. So I think that um, he's done an admirable job. We've seen the hockey season have to be suspended due to not having sufficient protocol in place. Um, to a point where they feel like they could have kept all their players and fans safe. But I think that from what we've seen, the, the league has been having a lot of success with the, with the season this year and nothing too adverse has happened up to this point with the NBA season. So I think that Adam Silver's done a pretty good job with it. I agree. We'll see how it plays out. All right. So moving on to the next one, 
the Grizzlies get John Morant back, obviously a star talent, but they've gone two and three since his return. He does get that game-winning layup um, in his last game, and he has played well in the last two, but still two and three since his return. The Grizzlies had gone 10 and one without Morant and had two separate five-game win streaks and statistically were a more dominant team. Are they somehow better without John Morant? Oh, that's stupid. They, that they are, they're guilty for even thinking that they might be a better team without John Morant. He is one of the best players in the league right now. And even if their record indicates that they've been a little bit worse with him back in the lineup, he's coming back into the lineup. So obviously there's going to be working him back into the fold and figuring out how to best utilize him with the team. But his most recent game beating one of the best teams in the league against the Suns, he scored 33 points, had four assists and shot 60% from three, 56% from the field. Like that, that's just nonsense to think that he is causing this team to lose games. Yeah, so for me, I don't think that John Morant being added to any team would hurt them. Obviously, a player of his talent is going to help your team. I think more so it's a question of are they utilizing their team and the talents on that team to the best of their abilities when John Morant is on the court? I do think that the Grizzlies are more predictable when he's on the court because they become more John Morant-centric. It all becomes the John Morant show. He becomes very ball dominant. And as a result, it's a little easier for defenses to game plan. And it's not necessarily, you know, like he's an inefficient scorer. It's not like giving the ball to Morant is inherently a bad idea because a lot of times he is going to get you that bucket. As you can see on that game-winning layup against the Phoenix Suns, very impressive play. I'm sure they were glad that they let him do his thing on that possession. But on a game-by-game basis, he does make them a little less versatile. And I think that they do a better job of having him move off the ball a little bit more and using a little bit of their other talents because I think that having him out has proven there are other players on this team that really can contribute. I think that with John Morant out, we were able to see the kind of player, for example, that Desmond Bain is, who should still get plenty of opportunities even with John Morant back. This guy has shown that he is a player. He is 23 years old. He was the 30th pick in the first round but he is honestly showing that this guy is a player to watch. This guy is averaging 19 points per game in December, largely because of the increased role that he's been given with John Morant being out the majority of that month. But this is a player that is much improved in every aspect. He plays really hard on defense. He is a really accurate three-point shooter. He's shooting 42% from three-point range on on 6.7 attempts per game. He's actually the more efficient scorer overall compared to John Morant. He's shooting 47% from the field, and he's also averaging 17.2 points per game now overall on the year. So I think that having John Morant out showed that they have other players that can do some things when given a larger role. So I think that they'd be better suited to changing their game plan a little bit and instead of just playing so much isolation, hey, Jod, just take it in, do your thing, run some plays, get the other guys involved, and use the talents that you have on this team to make teams have to really game plan for you because clearly there's other talented players on this Memphis Grizzlies squad. 
Yeah, well, the Grizzlies continue to impress, and I think that they'll continue to grow with Jaw back in the lineup. But that's it for the show. Like us, subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast players. Follow us on Courts of Opinion on Twitter and Court of Opinion on Instagram. With that, I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned.